Hey friends, it's me, your pal Chase Jarvis. I want to welcome you to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. This is the show where I sit down with the world's top creators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders, and I unpack what better be valuable insights on the road to helping you live your dreams in career, in hobby, and in life. My guest today is Piera Gilardi. Piera is the co-founder of Refinery29. Refinery29 is definitely one of the most important and influential lifestyle and editorial companies on the internet. Millions and millions of visitors every day from basically every every place on the planet. One of those classic entrepreneur stories with Piera, you know, she and a handful of friends started in a little makeshift office with tons of passion and not a lot of experience. They've had a few ups and downs, but damn, have they landed on something powerful and impactful with Refinery29. They're stronger than ever today. They've unquestionably made their mark on our culture with a voice that's very different from so much of mainstream fashion, uh, mainstream culture. You know, theirs built on diversity, inclusion, on the focus on women, women culture, community, all this has struck a real chord, not just with the media properties and lifestyle, it's just more, it's like a generational chord striking. Her story is really inspiring and she's expressly gifted at deconstructing her own story for the benefit of those who want to follow in her footsteps. You know, that's in part how I got started by sharing what it was like on the journey of becoming uh, a photographer and then an entrepreneur. She has done a very, very similar thing. We were, we have not been connected. This is the first time that we've ever met was when we recorded the show. I think there's a really interesting chemistry here. Um, anyway, we see the world very similarly around building an editorial point of view. She's done it with Refinery29 and you can do it with any kind of business like this or maybe even just a side hustle, blog, YouTube channel, whatever. The stuff that she shares here is pure gold for anyone who's interested in building that editorial point of view and sharing it. A couple highlights from the episode. You guys know I love creators who have really strong points of view and 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 relentlessly focus on, on honing it. Pira has that in spades. Uh, she talks a lot about the vision and voice of Refinery29, which is so critical to establishing a brand that resonates not just with the people that work there, but with people who are paying attention to what it is that you do out in the marketplace. It's a huge piece of her DNA, and I think she deconstructs that and shares it with us in a really unique way that I haven't heard from anyone else on the show. I also know that so many of you all out there are struggling with how to go from zero to one. That means you're in a career and you're on a path and it's not the one that you want to, so you need to change into something completely different. You're curious about what it's like to be an entrepreneur, to start something, to start a side hustle and maybe jump careers. That's the way that I talk about going from zero to one. And she gets into a lot of detail, specifically, tactically, what she's done to transition from a full-time day job to her, what was a side hustle at Refinery29 now is obviously a massive job. I think they employ either four or 500 people. And why she was really careful to compartmentalize her ability to pay the bills versus the parts that she was saving to expend on, um, you know, her emotional, human, intellectual capital to expend on building Refinery29. And then there's a whole other bunch of folks out there, and we talk about you all as well, from going from one to 10. You've started on this path, you identify what it is that you want, and you need to get better at it. You know, what areas you're trying to grow in. 
she and I go into detail specifically and tactically about that group as well, which uh, to me, this this is part of the way that I think about talking to y'all. I try and provide value to both segments, both cross sections of the part of your journey that you're in. Anyway, so many actionable tactical ideas here in the show. And with that, I'm going to I'm going to get into it. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by my friends at FreshBooks. FreshBooks are a cloud-based accounting software and it's designed specifically for you and me. That's right, for freelancers, solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, and the self-employed. Very stoked to have these guys on board. If you want to get your accounting on Rails, then I encourage you to check out FreshBooks. Sign up for a free trial at freshbooks.com chase. This episode of Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so happy to be here. I'm. This is a long time coming. I have been following your career, uh, following Refinery29. Uh, I feel like we're on the, um, if the last 10,000 years has been way too much about men, <laughs> I think the future has an amazing feminine quality to it. I can see it emerging in popular culture. I think you are a champion, a, uh, a leader in that world. Was this intentional or is this, are you just following your intuition and, and here we are, you have this insanely um, successful site, a career built on um, supporting, driving uh, the world of uh, feminism. Tell us a little bit about that. It was intentional and intuition, um, kind of a mix of both, which I think is sort of a theme throughout my career in life. Um, but yeah, I grew up... Um, with feminist parents, my mom um, was someone that really wanted to raise me with feminist values. And that radical notion that all humans are equal? Yeah, that all feminism. humans are equal, that me and my brother were equal, um, that I should you know, have the opportunity to choose things in my life and not you know, have it be assumed that you know, I would follow a stereotypical path. Um, and so, yeah, it was, you know, it was raised that way, like, you know, going to pro-choice rallies and um, reading feminist literature and, you know, kind of, um, my mom would, you know, read us feminist fairy tales when we were going to bed because she wanted, you know, both my brother and I to have examples of fierce female mm -hmm. protagonists. So um, I grew up with that and that was always kind of ingrained in who I was. And then um, as I started to, you know, grow in my life, um, that was something, you know, just a part of me that I really um, identified with. But it almost, because I was raised with it, it almost wasn't so much in my yeah. consciousness as like Yeah, and that's, a, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, like, I'm not like trying to overly frame that. And I think yeah. it's just a piece of your DNA that I find, you know, as someone who's read a lot about you and followed the story of you in Refinery29, it's just, it's a piece of that. Um, the DNA, it seems yeah. like. Oh, I was totally. just wondering, you know, what the basis was, and, and you were raised with it clearly. Yeah. Um, and how, how have you imported that into your into Refinery Twenty Nine? Yeah, I mean, it's totally a piece of my DNA. So yeah, like 
because it's just how I was raised in something that yeah, wasn't, didn't seem out of the ordinary to yeah. me. It wasn't um, a thing that you went to the store and got and then said, yeah. we're going to put this into our thing. Yeah, it's like now when I think back and I have the perspective to realize like that my mom, you know, and I've talked to my mom about those choices that she made, the fact that she has sought out those specific, you know, types of books and, you know, like in order to be the type of mom that she wanted to be, I think, you know, now I have the perspective to realize it, but then I didn't quite realize it. Um, but it was something I always gravitated towards. Like as a teenager, I loved Sassy Magazine and Bikini Kill, and I was just really drawn to sort of publications and culture that celebrated iconoclastic, powerful women who were, you know, really doing their own thing and that had, you know, spunk and courage and um, an exuberance to them. So that, that always inspired me, and um, I think also moving to New York, I grew up in this small town in Maine, and you know, it, was very, um, it was pretty homogenous in terms of um, culture and style and all these different things. Yeah. So, so coming to New York, I was completely in awe of just, I mean, I remember my first so time going, this place. yeah, I remember my first time going to Coney Island, I was like, this is the most beautiful place <laughs> in the world. Uh, just, you know, just because of the incredible, you know, mix of cultures and style and um, to me that's just so fascinating and gorgeous and um, so yeah, when, I, when we were starting Refinery29, um, we were, we wanted to celebrate personal style. We felt like um, I've never been, you know, what I think of as a fashion person. Um, I never really like identified in that way, but I always valued style as a form of self-expression um, and I always admired um, people that express themselves that way, that were so confident in their own skin that they could kind of have that expression. And that's something that goes, you know, way yeah, back to the, you know, in, in humanity is like adorning your body and, you know, using makeup and clothing to express something. Um, so I loved that about style, but yeah. I felt alienated by a lot of fashion publications. Um, and fashion Mainstream brands and advertising because it just felt, A, it was serving up this really narrow lens of what beauty looked like. It was sort of like everyone should aspire to be tall, thin, white, and rich. And I was like, that's boring. That's um, and it, you know, and also kind of designed to make you feel bad about yourself. Um, like you need these, Consume you need these things and, to yeah. be filled, to change you. Um, so yeah, we started Refinery29 to celebrate personal style. We were really inspired by all these different independent boutiques that we were seeing around us in New York um, that had a really unique perspective on what style was and that had totally different communities of style. Like you had Lyle um, in Nolita that was all uh, kind of like 20s, 30s, 40s vintage inspired and there were all these you know, amazing like retro women that were wearing that and they had their own unique yeah. style to like um, a life in the Lower East Side, which was much more of, you know, a, um, they were more celebrating like street culture and sneakers and they had their whole, whole own community around them yeah. and having, you know, performances in their backyard. And so we loved just seeing all these communities of style that were really different, um, but that were, that were an expression of more than just what you put on your body, they were an expression of you know different ways of kind of curating your life and different interests, and um, so it was much more a cultural look at what style was. So um, yeah, that's how we started Refinery Twenty Nine, and I think that that emphasis on individuality, celebrating um, you know more the personal style of fashion, um, that that grew. And actually, in the beginning, we were unisex. We wanted to. 
Um, we were focusing on both men's and women's. Um, we had a really unisex aesthetic. Um, and over, over not that much time, but over, I think, two years, we decided to focus on women. We felt like there was uh, more of an opportunity there. There was more interest um, from women, and we felt like the gap between what we wanted to create and what the women's media and fashion media was making was that a was bigger. Opportunity, it was yeah. a big opportunity. Yeah. Um, you know, it was just what we what we were doing felt really different and really exciting to us, and we um, just saw a lot of opportunity to change the way women were represented, to change the idea of what what women should aspire to. You know, because I, you know, my parents like, you know, and the way I grew up, it was like always about aspiring to yeah be kind of the best version of yourself and yeah. to continue to learn and grow and um, be curious and develop your interests and I was like why would I aspire to just copy copy this cookie yeah. cutter yeah, yeah. thing and like you know and that's not representative of what I think is like most beautiful in life and in culture so well you, obviously you did a you have done an amazing job of Thank creating you. the thing that you just described uh, you know, for the folks at home, um, I think I don't know anyone who's not really familiar with Refinery Twenty Nine. You guys have you're such a um, iconic brand in in media now. You guys have done an amazing job breaking through. But as a as an audience of creators and and builders and makers and doers yeah. and entrepreneurs, I think a lot of folks, aka they, our tribe, yeah, that's right, <laughs> our, our homies, aka our homies. When you know when. This was true for myself a long time ago. I feel like I know differently now, but there's a lot of folks at home who are like, wow, like I can't even take the first step because there are things like Refinery29 that have you know, done it already. Um, I know just enough about your founding story to be dangerous, but not enough to, <laughs> to tell the people and besides they'd want to hear it from sure. you. So give us a little, like, and it, with the goal of helping people understand that we didn't have it figured out, that we yeah. didn't have any money, we didn't no. have, you know, it was more like ready, fire, aim as opposed yeah. to the other round. So can you give us a little insight into that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that taking that first step can be so daunting. Um, and I certainly would have been absolutely terrified if it was like, um, I thought I was taking the first step to create a company that spoke to hundreds of millions of people every day, yeah. you know, or, you know, had 500 people on staff like I would just I, I just would have oh I mean huge. I would have I, I don't think I would have taken that step because it would just seem so terrifying and I'd be like I'm 20 you know I'm 23 years old what do I know about <laughs> building a business of that size um, but I think because it's like it's like just you just take the first step you're not you don't have to like go you know 12 years into the future and and do this thing just yet um, so I think because we built it slowly over time, it was, you know, it, it just, it's not as daunting. I mean, because yeah. when we, so when we started it, um, as I said, we were inspired by all these independent boutiques in New York. And um, we launched actually with this, um, what looked like a really cool interactive mall map of the 29 best stores in New York. Um, and you could kind of browse them and, and learn more about them. We did a lot of street style with people, you know, the different communities of, um, people that went to those places, but it was, I mean, you know, it wasn't like this big revelatory thing yeah. when it launched. Um, it was cool. It was unique. Um, but it, you know, where we've taken it is to this whole other place where, you know, now we're doing 
we have so many different realms of what we're doing. You know, we're creating 200 plus, you know, stories a day across all these different platforms. We're, 200? Yeah, it's crazy. Oh you know, we have a short, God. we have a short film um, uh, series that we've been doing with different women directors. We have, you know, live events that we do, like um, this event, 29 Rooms. That's yeah, I definitely want to talk this, about that. You know, kind of huge, ambitious project, but so it's, it's, the, where it started to where it is is so vastly um, evolved, but you know I think as you're creating, you start to you start to see these new steps. So, I mean, I think what's interesting to me is when, um, like when we started, I saw opportunity, but it was it was kind of like right here. Yeah. And then as you start to build, the window and the and the vision that you have gets bigger and bigger. So now I feel like where we're at. It's just the tip of the iceberg because once you start to, you know, once you start to grow and it's see, it's like unlocking levels in a video yeah, game. Yeah, totally. Like, oh my god, there's a whole other world exactly. over here. Well, that's yeah. I think that's super refreshing. Um, can you talk a little bit about the tactics, like this? Like oh, you had, yeah. I, I heard you had five five grand or totally. something like that. And then this, I only this half is a, answered your question. I answered no, no. like the second part for the audience. No, it's cool, and, yeah. and that's yeah. I think yeah. that's the part that is the the dreamer part and. You have to have dreams before you put, you know, put tactics in place. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's sure. important for for I think the folks at home to understand that there was a time when you didn't know when your next dollar oh, yeah. was going to come from, and you didn't know if it was going to work, and maybe it's just for your homies, and it wasn't for 500 million people. So yeah. can you take us back to the mindset and the actual like, you know, yeah, what you had or what you didn't have? I definitely can step into my time machine <laughs> um, <laughs> to go back. So, yeah, so we started, you know, we started, we launched it. I have three um, co-founders, Philip, Justin, and Christine. Um, Philip and Justin had the original idea for Finery29. I basically started doing it as my side hustle, um, kind of as a friend consultant. Um, And Philip, at the time, was my boyfriend, is now my husband of 12 years. Um, And Justin Justin was his friend from um, high school. And um, and then Christine had been my boss at the at a magazine that I had worked at before starting Refinery. So, um, so yeah, we started the company with this map, um, and we you built you know, the website yourself. We built no, we got I had a um, a friend who I had you know who I there you go it's unfolding right? yeah the it's friends like, like hey I can had, you help exactly. me with this thing I right. had had a friend that I worked with a lot at the magazine that I had been at previously who was you know my age and. Um, so asked her, to, her and her company. She had a small like company to do the logo and and design the website. Um, through her, found a developer to launch it, and um, yeah, we launched it. I mean, we you know to kind of start the company. Um, Philip and Justin actually through like friends and family um, scrummaged together five thousand dollars, which was like five how grand. we love it. how we started the business. And we started it, you know, very scrappy. Like I still I I still was working at the magazine when we first started and I would basically, you know, just be up really late <laughs> at night working on it. Um, would spend the weekends going like store to store, um, photographing and um, you know, taking yeah, taking street style and product pictures and all this stuff. And then, um, you know, after some time, I quit my job, but I still did freelance for, I think, almost a year and a half. This um, is important, too. Yeah. yeah. I did freelance for a year and a half. I would basically do um, anything that came to me that sort of allowed me to just go, like, it was like a day rate situation. So yep. anything where I could just 
I didn't have to think about it before or after, just go do the job and then get out. So I did a lot of like production assisting, styling assisting, um, some like random illustration jobs, just really anything that um, was, was like fixed so that I could use most of my brain, like my active brain power on creating the company. Um, but you know, that was sort of, that was how we got it started. We, you know, we bootstrapped it 100%, used our office as our headquarters. Your everything, right? Your world yeah. headquarters. Yeah, it's actually so funny because sometimes I think back and like I remember that um, Justin, our, you know, our partner and co-founder would come over um, and of course Philip and I lived together because you know we're married uh -huh. uh, so he would come over and like sometimes you know I remember once like we like decided at lunch I had leftover risotto and we just like fried up some arancini um, and like it's so funny to, 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 for me to think about this now like I'm like what were we doing and the, also the funny thing to me is that I felt so overwhelmed and so busy back then yeah um, and now when I think about it, I was like, why did I, you know, what was I doing that like made me feel that way? Cause it, you know, when in, in perspective, it feels like it was, you know, just this totally different level, but yeah, we, you know, we bootstrapped it. And I think what, um, helped us to be successful was, um, having, you know, a unique and differentiated point of view. And a lot of people told us we would never be successful, mm. um, because we were focusing on these independent brands that, didn't have a lot of marketing budgets. They weren't, you know, global conglomerates. Yep. Um, but actually, that was a, an advantage for us because, you know, we were too small to to work with the gap. You know, yep. um, we didn't have we had a small niche, dedicated audience that really cared about what we were doing. Um, and actually, those small brands that everyone said would be our downfall were it was a self-supporting community. Oak in Brooklyn was our first advertiser for a whopping $1,000. Um, and, and then, you know, after a couple of years, Stephen Allen, um, which, who owns stores kind of all over the world now, although he was a new, more New York focused um, retailer then, he was our first investor. So that community helped support us as we as we grew. Okay, so many things you just said. <laughs> I want to deconstruct them okay. because it's the-, the Let's pick know, things it's, apart. Let's pick them <laughs> apart. So in particular is, well, uh, gosh, which one of those things should I go into first? Which I layer? guess, yeah, there's so many layers. I think the, let's go to the part where you transition into this career that was something that you really wanted. I think there's a, a, a cultural narrative that's like, yeah, you're an entrepreneur, you go all in, you just push yeah. your chips in and you jump off the bridge. And, and I don't, like, the people that I know who are the most successful entrepreneurs, none of them did that. Right. You, are you committed? Yes. But is there, you know, is there things like, or are there things like rent and food and that if you can't provide for yourself, yeah. that's gonna cause real problems? And I think that segue, that transition from you know, you and your magazine job into living your dream career. To yeah. me, that's a massive black hole for so many people yeah. who want to get started. So give me a little bit, like, you talked about about doing things that, that didn't suck up all your time. Yeah. To me, that's a big thing because people are like, oh, yeah, I have my full-time job, and then between the hours of... 9 p.m. and 5 a.m., that's where I'm doing my thing, right. you know, the classic side hustle, yeah. which I'm not against that, but I think you're like constraining the other things right. is massively important. Yeah. It's a gap. Talk to me about that. 
Well, I think, you know, I think it depends what your job is. I mean, my job at the magazine um, was a great job. It was very, it was very creative. I love the people that I worked with. Um, and, um, and, you know, it was creatively rewarding because I had a lot of freedom. It was a really, um, you know, interesting place and I learned a lot there. Um, however, my like entrepreneurial roots and just my, I guess, fierce independence made me want to do my own thing. Yep. Um, but I, 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 I'm also someone that like, I can't, I'm like, like I was like all in at that magazine job. Yeah. Um, it wasn't my company, but I was like, I was all in. Sure. Um, and that's sort of just my personality. It's like, I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm going to give it my all. Um, so uh, for me, it was, I was, when we started the company, I was doing it. Yeah. yeah. Like. I, you know, was doing it nights and weekends and, um, you know, was having some success at doing that, but it was just really hard for me to think bigger about it because of, you know, knowing, just still having the, the creative energy going into my job. Yeah, yeah. So I think some people who are really great at kind of like yeah, compartmentalizing, say, compartmentalizing yeah, 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 yeah. and are really disciplined um, can handle make you know doing a side hustle with a full-time job and like I'm you know kudos to them and I think they're amazing um, that's just not how my brain works so I had to you know I knew that if I wanted to pursue um, refinery and building it and you know taking a real shot at starting my own thing yeah. that I was gonna need to like leave the magazine um, but I, you know, financially I couldn't just, you know, quit and be like, okay, now I'm doing this thing that doesn't pay me any money. Um, so yeah, it helped to just find, I think, you know, what, within whatever career you're in, because I was, um, a photo director at a magazine, which involves, you know, production and art direction. Yeah. Um, I was involved in styling. Um, I was able to kind of transition that into these different smaller, smaller yeah. freelance gigs that paid, you know, that had decent yeah. day rates. Um, and it was actually amazing, like year and a half or two years, um, our fashion director from the magazine had also gone freelance. And so he was just, he was my savior. Like he kept booking me on these different jobs that he was job. doing. <laughs> yeah. So I would, I would assist him, you yeah. know, and styling assisting is like, yeah. you know, logist, logist, yeah, it's like, $250 a day, yep. um, but sometimes on commercial jobs I would get $500 a day, which was awesome. Um, and yeah, it just involves like, it's, you know, it's, it's, so, it, it's, it's so compartmentalized. Yeah. Like you're there, you're doing the job, you're focused on it, and then when you leave, it's, amazing it's done, how, you just have to invoice. Yeah, but it's amazing to me how that act of compartmentalizing frees you up, yeah. you know, and I think you don't want to have that as a career, you know, I, some people do, they want to go, yeah. they want to, you know, have their nine to five and then when they get off, they're off, you know, I, and I respect people yeah. for that, but that's not really the entrepreneurial spirit. Most yeah. of the folks that I know don't, don't have that compartmentalization, yeah. they're sort of all in. And it's an, it's to me, you know, having done exactly the same thing that you're talking about, um, but with sort of waiting tables or, yeah. and it was because I couldn't get work in photography, I didn't know any photographers right. to start out. Um, that, that, that little missing piece of how do you compartmentalize it because, you know, the, the 10 hour day is a long grind and yeah. it's anything else, you got to commute and then you really, how much energy, and the reality is if you want to have, if you want to change your life, you have to put the time in, but yeah. the simple act of how much do I need to make every month, how can I compartmentalize it, go to work, do my thing, get paid and get the hell out of there and get back to dreaming and doing the thing yeah. that you care about massive, um, I think that's a, a powerful insight. So that was one of the things I wanted to yeah. deconstruct. Um, another one is the, the, 
that you didn't have, like, you did all of the jobs. Like, you, you talked about doing so many of the yeah. things at your, your new magazine and, and creating community and bringing in your friends. And um, how important was that to getting the business off the ground? I mean, I think it was, I think it was really critical. Um, in order to launch our business, I had to learn so many things that I didn't know. Like I learned Google Analytics so I could send, our tra you know, send traffic reports and understand what people were reading and what they were engaging with and what they were interested in. But you were a creative. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, I don't know, I'm not like a, I, I think that idea of like the, the creative Thank you um, for blowing this up. I can yeah. see where you're going. Keep going. Yeah, on. I mean, I think the idea of this like monolithic, like glowing creative that you know has all the big ideas but doesn't you know have to get in the There's no weeds. shovels or yeah. It's yeah, bullshit. yeah, I just think it's bullshit. I mean, I think from multiple levels. I mean, um, you know, I think that being uh, and from my experience, and I know we have so many stories in our culture that are about things just popping off and, you know, this overnight successes. I mean, it took us eight years to be an overnight success. We always joke that that's the case. And it took so much hard work having to do so many different things that, you know, were outside of my job description. Not that I've ever really had a job description, right. but, um, and I think that also that idea of that monolithic creative is um, really antiquated because I think to be, from, for me, being creatively successful is about, is about community. It's about listening to many different people's ideas. It's about not having to be the loudest voice in the room, but actually being the one with the like, the, Antennas up, yeah. The with yeah, with the with the best ears, yeah, with yeah. the you know that's like connecting the dots and what people are saying and attuned to, um, yeah, attuned to other people. So, yeah, I think that idea is is to me not not one that I resonate with. Yeah, I, um, and I do wonder if that's it. because that's the the general idea of of the creative or the creative director. Um, you know, I sometimes wonder if that's why only, you know, 4% of creative directors are women because people have this different, this just antiquated and different idea um, of, what, of what it means. Um, anyway, but going back to your question, um, yeah, I think, you know, as we, as we grew, it's really been about learning different skills and taking on um, different things. And, and like we used to, the four of us used to joke, like at Refinery29, no job is too small, you know, as like, you know, Philip and Justin went to like, they almost got like crushed by an air conditioner that they bought, you know, they had to buy off Craigslist for our office because that's, you know, the one that we could afford. Yep. Or, you know, we're lugging the trash out of the office at night. Um, you know, it's just all these things are yeah. like, you know, you just kind of figure out how to do it and you do it like. Um, Very unsexy. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's, un I think it's sexy. Good, I um, love that answer. That's yeah. A, that's a great reframing. You know, I, I don't know. It's like, Work I, was sexy. I've always thought work was sexy. I mean, that's also like, just to go back to like my background, like I grew up in a family business. Everyone always sort of worked in some capacity of the family business. And um, like, I just felt like everyone in my family was always like collaborating on stuff. And so I always thought work was very exciting, very sexy. I had a job from a very young age. Um, and yeah, I don't know. From, well, let's, let's put a pin in that for a second. Yeah. Cause when, before the camera, confession, before the cameras start rolling, we were talking a little bit about each of our backgrounds and you came from an entrepreneurial family 
And at one time, uh, your father had the, the largest business in Maine, mm -hmm. and they experienced some problems. Yeah. And did that that background and your living, your life in that family, how did it prepare you for what you're doing now? And is having that background required for no. someone? Okay, so give us a little bit of backstory yeah. and how you've applied some of those lessons to, totally. to your career arc as a creator and as yeah. an entrepreneur. I mean, I think that that's, I'm going to answer the question, I promise. Okay. But I'm going to have a slight non sequitur first. Great, let's do it. Um, yes. Yes, uh, anywhere you want to go. No, yeah. I think that, you know, I think that looking, you know, it's great to look to people for inspiration and to, um, you know, glean ideas and confidence from seeing, you know, people, you know, other people's stories of success or failure or whatever. Um, but I think that, Thinking that there's one there's one way of doing things or that there's one path mm -hmm. um, to a desired outcome is totally erroneous and every you know everyone can find their own path. Like I don't think my path to what I am doing is totally even though I came from an entrepreneurial background, yeah. like it, it's not a linear path and it really is you know I think you are the most successful when you kind of find your own strengths, you create your own story, um, and you're not trying to model yourself completely off of someone, someone else's success. Um, I think it's just so important to know what success looks like for you and to, you know, really create that from the place of like your, you know, your background, your interests, your skills. Um, so you don't have to have the same background as me to do something similar to what I do. Awesome. Um, I, I had coffee with James Victori. I don't know if you know James. is an amazing um, designer. Uh, he's got some stuff in the moment. He's found the show. The things that made you weird as a kid will make you great yeah, as a creator totally. and entrepreneur. Yes. So sort of lean into those things. Yeah, lean, yeah, yeah, lean into what makes you you. Um, I, I think that that's like something that I've learned again and again over time and something I definitely suggest that, that people think about. Um, but yeah, so growing up, I grew up, um, my dad and his brother had a business called Shape, um, and it was a manufacturing business, manufacturing CDs, VHS cassettes, um, oh, in the eighties, in the eighties when those things, I mean, when those things were, you know, all the rage, yes. um, but they were very innovative in technology, engineering and manufacturing. Um, and I had a big business, so I grew up like putting on my little like clean, clean. Um, going to the factory. Yeah, going to the factory wow. with the little hoodie and the, the booties. Booties. <laughs> um, yeah, and like you know, would take the I would get all the rejected CDs, and my cousins and I would make um, like armor and jewelry out of them. And um, but yeah, so I grew up with you know he, him, and his brother um, having this business, and my you know my mom worked in the business, um, my aunt worked in the business, my cousins would come for the summer and work at Shape. Oh, wow. Um, I, my brother and I worked at Shape at different points. Um, so I think just seeing that was, you know, and it was always blending, like they would, um, because we lived in Maine and they had, you know, clients from all over, they would actually use that as an advantage and have, you know, business clients come and they, so we would have like these clam bakes 
like multiple nights a week for my oh, dad's okay. clients. Nice. Um, so just kind of like coastal like, Maine. There getting, you go. You know, you had to. They had to like lure them in because it was like, wait, we're going for a business meeting in Maine. <laughs> um, so yeah, so he had this successful business, um, but then by from a couple, you know, a couple of different things happened um, from uh, manufacturing, moving, starting to move to China. Um, you know, the cost, I think that, I forget, like the cost of one of the plastics that they used went way up and they had, um, an, you know, a bad investor that, you know, through, through the series of all these things, um, they ended up going bankrupt. My dad got fired from his own business. Oh my God. Um, and it was, you know, also they were like a Cinderella story in the press because they came, you know, both came from working class background, you know, military family. Um, and they built, they completely built this thing from the ground up. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, then it was like the downfall because everyone loves to build, build them up and then tear them down. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate yeah. aspect of our culture. Um, so yeah, I, I saw that happen. Um, but I think it was, you know, I just think it was such an amazing, um, foundational thing to see. Um, I think it's kind of had two effects. One is that I have a healthy dose of paranoia, um, and not in a not in a bad way. I think it's sure. just an awareness that um, all this could go away. Yeah, that everything can go away, and that that's actually okay. Yeah. Um, but that it's you know important to be a to never get too comfortable or confident in what you're doing. Like knowing that um, you know knowing that the industry is always changing. That that the factors at play can always shift. Um, but but you know being but being aware of those things can help you to avo you know avoid um, them sideswiping you. Um, so that's something that definitely I took away from it. But also it's just amazing to see um, you know that was really challenging for my dad. It's still something that you know we talk about a lot. Um, but he um, it just it changed his life in so many different ways. Like he I feel like he actually. Um, it, it taught him a lot more about what was important to him. Um, and he, um, he's just like, I think he's a better person for it. So it's, to me, it also just makes it, it makes it okay that that can happen. It makes it like, um, yeah, it makes me grateful in the moment to just like, yeah. to, to recognize, okay, like right now things are really great. And I'm, you know, I'm truly grateful for that. And if, if things change, that's, that's okay too, and I, I, I know that if yeah, you know, or that you can solve problems, yeah. and yeah, I, like he never reached that same level of you know. That's the thing I think also about success is and knowing what's successful to you because he never had a company that that size again, that scale. Um, but he's had you know he, he's can ma like maintained his passion. He's had a lot of other businesses. He's become so much more like since that point he became so much more involved in our family's yeah, life and yep. that's something that mm -hmm. has given him so much joy um, so I think seeing that and realizing that success doesn't mean you know doesn't have to mean having this the biggest huge, company huge in right. crazy thing yeah. like I mean sometimes people ask me like you know when did you when did you become successful or when did you feel like you'd really like made it and the funny thing is like when we launched that little map and you know 500 people yeah. came to the site like, like I was high-fiving we got yeah. you know we went out for pizza we were yeah. like this is awesome yeah, and right. I felt so six I felt yeah. successful yeah. Um, so I think um, I forget I, I don't I forget who said this but um, I think about it a lot which is that comparison is the killer of joy um, so 
you know, I, I just think about that a lot because it really is about knowing what success looks like to you, what like fulfillment is for you, yeah. um, and not feeling like you have to model that off of some something else that exists in the world. That is a beautiful segue to what I'd like to shift gears to now. Nice, <laughs> perfect. Of course, um, let's let's go to a little bit more philosophical place um, around. The, the mission and focus of Refinery29 and obviously your personal DNA overlaps deeply with mm -hmm. that and culture. So yeah. there's a lot of folks out there that like, you know, what what does you know, diversity and inclusion bring to my business or to my work mm -hmm. or to, um, maybe you can talk about imprinting your own DNA and specifically, you know, for other leaders who are listening, like yeah. what is, I have a very, um, visceral, very strong reaction to what it's done for me and my business and the people that I get to work mm -hmm. with. But I'd love to hear yours. How do you think about that? And what role has your mission played in, and, and diversity and inclusion played yeah. in the strength of what you've built, what you built? Sure. So, I mean, I think for, for us as we were building Refinery29, inclusivity has always played a, a huge part. Again, like from starting and seeing all these incredible communities within New York that were really diverse in, in all different ways in terms of their style, race, body type, background, everything. Um, and, and, you know, again, to me, that's such a huge source of, of strength and beauty and power. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the other thing was as we were creating, we were creating for a new generation of, of women. And the, the millennial generation is the most diverse generation in U.S. history, now superseded by Gen Z. Yep. And by 2044, the majority of America will be made of you know, minorities. So minorities will be the majority. So I think that that's just something that's so important to recognize. For us, it's always been um, you know, really pivotal to reflect our audience and our content, to make sure that the content that we create um, is not just our, you know, our idea, but is actually something that is meaningful, that um, reflects the people consuming it back to them. Um, so that's been at the core for a long time. And actually, like we, you know, to to do that was not. It's still not always easy. Um, when we first started, you know, doing original photography, for example, most of the modeling agencies only had, um, you know, they had majority white models, and they also, you know. Also, is all pretty much all straight size models. Yep. Um, so, you know, kind of hiring a model through a modeling agency is the easy way to do it, and it's the way most people do it. But we started doing street casting. We started making, you know, cards that I would pass out in the, you know, me and our photo editors would pass out in the subway, or we'd go to like, you know, music festivals and pass them out so that we could start actually reflecting. Um, the women reading Refinery29 or, or, you know, women that looked like them in our content. So um, I remember, I think it was in 2010 or 11 that we did, um, we did this idea that we had that was the month of hair. Um, so we wanted Amazing. to, um, every day of the month, ta be talking about hair, but be talking about different kinds of hair. Um, and we wanted that to be the most, you know, diverse representation of hair in terms of style and length and texture. Um, and so, yeah, it was like I, I was out casting at the Madewell store. I went to the, you know, was at the gym across the street and there was this beautiful, like, Afro-Latina um, receptionist that had this beautiful head of hair. And so I was like, hey. you know, you know, you 
please be in this. So, you know, really through doing that, we tried to represent, you know, a huge range. And, and what was amazing about it was just that the, the response that we got, people thanking us for, you know, seeing hair like theirs in our content. And it seems like such yeah. a small thing, but it's actually really meaningful. Um, and that, you know, it was something that was important to us, but I feel like that was a moment where we realized how important it could be yeah. to people. Um, and so since then, we've really continued to work on focusing on, on you know, shifting the representation of women. And I think that's on multiple levels. Um, you that, know, was that was my next question. So you're talking yeah. about in terms of hair and fashion, but it presumably operates at, at so many different levels in the company. Yeah. Maybe you could touch on a couple of those. Totally. Yeah, like, I mean, I think there was represent, you know, there was just such a gap. I think what was happening in a lot of mainstream media, as I mentioned before, was this narrow lens of what beauty looked like. Um, it was also this limiting lens of what women, like, what women could be. You know, even when you think about the proliferation of articles about how to please your man and not, you know, these publications not really telling women that they have their own power, that their own pleasure is something that is the source of power, that they should be thinking about, you know, men's pleasure, not their own pleasure. I mean, that's like an example of, I think, the, the thought process that was happening. So, um, fractured, so messed up, yeah. Yeah, we wanna, we wanna be a catalyst for women to feel, see, and claim their power. That's our, that's our mission. Um, and, you know, part of that is, you know, you, we've all heard that expression, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Um, so we try and represent that in all different levels from, you know, when we started doing sex content, we said we're not going to presume the sexual orientation of our audience. We're not going to, you know, yeah, we're, we're going to say partner. We're not going to say boyfriend. Um, so little choices like that, but then also really thinking about the photography that we have on site and how we can, um, you know, represent women through that. So, um, Last year, we launched this project called the 67% Project, because I think it's also important you know, in, in life and in work to constantly be taking stock and thinking about you know, what, what is it that I'm trying to accomplish and, and, and checking in and saying, how am, I, how am I doing? And how is, you know, also culture is always changing, so it's important always to say, changing. like, you know, am I, have, am, I, am I where I need to be? Um, so last year we didn't, we did that exercise. We said, we, we learned that 67% of women in the U.S. are size 14 and up. Um, and, and media and advertising only represent them 2% in images. Um, you know, which is really damaging. If you don't see yourself represented, that teaches you that you should be ashamed of, you know, who you are. And I do think that we have been so you know, women in particular have been so brainwashed by the imagery that we see and this ideal of beauty that is a that is a falsity. Yep. Um, so we're trying to we're trying to unwind that, and it has been shown that you can start to unwind bias by showing people different images. So if you see a different image, you can start to shift your mindset and your and your bias. In fact, it's the only way it really is, right? I mean, if you are aware of it, that's like the first step towards yeah. change. Yes, is, is exactly. Yeah, um, yeah so, I, I was familiar with that, the 67% thing, that the 2 two to 4%, that was just so shocking. And I think that underpins so many of the things that have made you and Refinery29 successful is leaning into those things. Yeah. You talked about them as 
little details. And there's an Ames quote, an Eames quote that I love, which is the details aren't the details, the details are the thing. Yeah, the details are the thing. Yeah, and when you know folks are looking to make a, their mark in the world and make a difference, and um, you know if you try and speak to everybody, you end up speaking to nobody. So what what can you focus on, and what details can you apply that are that are uniquely you or things that you care deeply about. Yeah. That's the differentiator. That ends up being like the differentiator. You know, when I think of Refinery29, I think like just so in touch with culture. Thanks. You, you guys nailed it. Thank <laughs> really. you. Well, I think, you know, for us, when we learned that stat and we actually looked at our own site and, and we've been talking about body positivity, we've been aiming towards inclusivity for years, but actually when we took stock of our own site, we were far behind. We weren't representing 67% of our images, you know, plus size women. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we said, you know what, we need to change this. We need to, you know, we can't just talk about this. We need to actually do it. So we spent months shooting new images um, and really trying to repicture. Because also when you look at, when like, it was like when we looked at what existing images there were, like on stock sites of plus size women, the majority of them, the woman's weight was the subject of the image. So it was a woman like measuring her waist or a woman standing on a scale. So it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't even, it wasn't a woman positive. working right. out or right. like getting a coffee or talking to her friend. It was like all these women, all these images of plus size women were just about her weight. So you can kind of infer what that's sort of saying about yep. the image that this person is not a, you know, isn't a whole complete person. Um, she's just fixated on her weight because that's abnormal. And didn't you guys do and, a project with Getty around? Yeah. Can you talk about just small departure for a second? Talk about that because that's yeah. really interesting. In order, you, you you recognize there's a problem, and then then you fixed it, <laughs> or not fixed well, it, but we, like we you, definitely you, haven't you, fixed you, it. But to we're... be clear, sorry, <laughs> but in stock photography, yeah. you said let's do something. Let's take action. Yeah. Can you give us a like small departure on, on how you? went about trying to make an impact in that yeah. area where you saw a problem? Yeah, so, um, yeah, it was kind of small steps over, over time, um, but when we, when we committed ourselves to, um, you know, doing this 67% project, and we're still working towards getting to that consistently representing 67% of our Incredible. images showing plus-size women, reflecting back, you know, the reality of our, of America, um, so but as we started banking all these images, creating all these new images to sort of repicture what women look like, um, I met the director of visual trends at Getty. His name is Pamela Grossman. She's amazing. She's just someone that I think is so phenomenally interesting and talented. Um, anyway, so I met her and I was we were talking because we are very much like kindred spirits in terms of like wanting to disrupt taboos and challenge convention and re, you know, re-picture um, the way that women are represented, you know, with a, with a goal of showing women in all of their, you know, complete glory, not, not kind of tokenizing these different elements of women's existence. Um, so we, we had dinner and we just were like jiving so hard and it was like clear that we needed <laughs> to do, on. We, it was clear that we needed to do something together. Um, and um, I, you know, it was like when we thought about it, it was like, okay, so we can make this change on our own site and our platforms and, and ourselves do better at representing women. Um, or 
we can have a much bigger impact by actually giving these images to anyone in the industry, whether that's in you know, editorial or advertising, um, and saying, look, you can no longer say that you can't find an awesome image of a plus-size woman because here's all these amazing images. So, so cool. have at it, use them. So, um, yeah, I mean. So beautifully disruptive and supportive. And I just love action instead of just pointing at a problem and saying this is a problem. Like, what are you going to do to take a role in fixing it? I think that is amazing. Thank you. So cool. I mean, I think that that's something um, that I think about a lot and I love you know, hearing examples like I'm, I always think about there's a moving company that donates time to helping um, uh, people that are escaping domestic, women who are escaping domestic violence move themselves and their families. Um, and I think about it all the time because I love that, um, you know, it as an example of like using what your skill is, your calling or your job and finding the way to kind of tie that to something that you're passionate about changing in the world. Um, and I think for me, that was kind of my, it feels like my calling in a way because, you know, I come from a visual photo, photo background. I went to art school um, and, you know, was working at a fashion magazine, which was really creative, but um, I don't know, in a lot of ways, I guess, still reinforcing sort of, yeah. not, not fully. I do think we were doing a better than average job, but not, you know, it wasn't, wasn't really moving the needle in the way I wanted to. Um, and it's just been really exciting. And again, to talk about like the window of possibility opening, it's like you do one small thing, you just start going out and passing out these street, these you know street casting cards. And then over time, it builds into like this collaboration with Getty. Um, so I think that's so important to realize is just just take the, just make a decision, take the first step, and then make the most of it. I mean, I think that that's like the best you know advice I can give. Um, because people can be so daunted about doing something big. Well, that's okay. You don't have to do something big. Just do something small, and then do the next small thing. And then, you know, it kind of is like a breadcrumb trail that leads you somewhere. Um, incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Hey folks, I want to inject another quick word from our sponsor, FreshBooks. I want to give a shout out to those guys. Reminder, FreshBooks is a cloud-based accounting software created specifically for creators, freelancers, and the self-employed folks like you and me. They just launched an all-new version designed from the ground up that is fantastic. A quick, quick backstory. I once did, for a whole year, a paper ledger accounting and then did my own taxes, handwritten, without the help of an accountant or any software. It was horrible. I would never wish it on my worst enemy. And I just think about how much time and energy FreshBooks would have saved me in that year of my life. Uh, so simple to use. Couple of my favorite features. One is you can create an invoice in less than 30 seconds. Super, super easy. Another one is that, <laughs> this is related, you can see when your clients have actually viewed your invoice. So that removes that idea of hey, I never saw your invoice. And then the last one, which is a, a big thing nowadays, is you can literally with two clicks accept online payments like credit cards, get those funds direct into your bank account so you can get paid faster. Best of all, FreshBooks is giving you listeners here a 30-day unrestricted trial. Um, and to claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash chase. And, and somewhere there, there's a, a thing that says, how'd you hear about us? Throw in my name or the Chase Driver Show or something like that to let them know that you came from here. Thanks a lot. And now back to the show. To go back to, I, I pulled you off track a little bit to go down. The, I, I go off track on my own. To go down to, <laughs> but this is like the people at home, this is what they want to hear. They want to hear you. 
So I'm just trying to provide a couple of guide rails here. And I want to go back to the, uh, not just the 67% thing, but mm -hmm. the basically a, a focus on providing uh, perspective. Because, uh, to, you know, there's so many folks, I, I said earlier in the, in the interview, like when you try and do something for everybody, you do something for nobody. Yeah. How important has focus been? You started out, you know, you guys iterated a little bit. You talked about how... Um, you used to be for men and women, and then you've narrowed, and now you're you're addressing some women, women in power, gender diversity. Like, how has that focus been a huge positive for you? Yeah, I think what are, what you are, know, sorry, or maybe what I'm I'm framing the question too much. You know, what have been the results of you furthering your focus? Has it been successful, or is it you know are you do you find that it creates rifts in the company or in your audience or how do you, how, how has it been for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, we've focused in more in some ways, but expanded in a lot of other ways. So um, I do think when you're starting something, having focus is super important. You know, one, because generally if you're starting something, there's an element of bootstrapping and you don't have a ton of resources. Um, so trying to do too many different things or trying to, you know, appeal to too many different audiences is just going to fragment your time and your energy. And it's better to actually build off of, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you know that you want to go here, but like starting at that small point that feels like where is the most differentiated and interesting well, yeah. place to but start. What can you do with what you got? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, we did start focus on, you know, on men and women quickly honed in on women um, and I think you know then we've built on that we started focused on style and beauty um, and but also really infusing those with a bigger message so it's, you know sort of like we're talking about style and beauty which a lot of people think are superficial but we're actually showing you that these are you know, tools for self-expression. We're actually using these as a way to talk about individuality and to celebrate diversity. Um, so started from that place and then, you know, started to build. We, we started to say, you know, um, we, you know, we were interested in like experimenting in, in health and sex and seeing if our audience was interested in those things. And we did some small experiments and it was like the you know the couple of stories we did in that realm like did way better than anything else that we were putting out. We were like, oh wow, like let's lean into this, um, and we saw that that was just something that there was a huge appetite for. Again, I think because we were differentiated in our perspective, we weren't you know talking about how to please a man. We were talking about how to please yourself and you know get a lot of knowledge that was sort of taboo and you could only read about it either in like scary medical places or in places that were like w winking and you didn't even know what they were saying. So it was using so many like cheeky languages. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, you know, I think as we started to grow, we started to do little experiments and test. I think that's the other thing that's been, you know, so important to how we've grown is, is yeah, not just jumping off the cliff into the, you know, into the, I don't know. Abyss. Abyss, no, thank sure. you. I was sure. like, uh, what did you ocean. <laughs> um, so not just, you know, not, or just, or not like just launching some crazy yeah. huge thing without doing any sort of testing. Yeah. Um, we've really done like our, our model is more to kind of do these little tests and then 
you know, we, we talk a lot about sort of like, yeah, like we'll do like a couple little tests with, you know, maybe small stories that don't take a lot of resources. And then we, if we see a big reaction, then we build it into, you know, a short series. If that does amazing, then it's, you know, then it builds into something bigger until it's a full, like, you know, till it's a full blown thing on its own. Got it. um, but a lot of those little tests don't go anywhere. So I think it's important to stay focused and you know, if you have other things that you want to try, that's awesome. Just test them out in small ways that don't fracture all of your time and attention. I love the theme of experimenting, you know, A-B testing and whatever oh, yeah. in the web world. and, and A-B testing. Yeah, <laughs> it's a thing. It's a real thing. Um, but that's a nice little nugget of advice. Any other, like, tactical pieces of advice? You know, I think I'm trying to... Um, you know, for the folks that are out there that already identify as a creator, they mm -hmm. want to start, they, or they're on their way and they're trying to get the next thing. Like, what, what advice do you have? You know, clearly testing small, we've talked about how to transition into that thing. Yeah. There's been a lot of good tactical stuff. Other just pieces of advice that I could say, you know what, here's what Pierre said. Here's, here's the advice. And oh, it's risky, but advice. you gotta go there. Yeah, I mean, one thing that might sound like an oxymoron, but I think be confidently humble. So for us knowing what it was that we didn't know and what we needed to learn helped us to grow, helped us to ask for help, helped us to f seek out people that um, could complement um, and fill in the blanks that we had. Mm -hmm. I think so often people are scared to admit that they don't know something or scared to be vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and that can really be, um, that can really be an Achilles heel on something that keeps you from from growing. Um, so for us, yeah, being I know it, it does sound like an oxymoron, but um, you know, knowing confidently what you don't know, knowing what you know, That's knowing what you don't know, for sure, um, and being confident as you ask for help and advice, um, because building a business, you know, even if it's in your area that you studied, that you um, you know, that you, yeah, like had a previous job in, it, there's so many elements that you can't know. I yeah. mean, every, every phase that we get to with our business, I'm like, I don't know how the hell to do this. Like, who am I to take our business to this next level? Like, I, you know, and, and you can tell yourself different narratives. Like I can tell, I could tell, you know, I have told myself in the past, like, you don't know what you're doing. You didn't, you know, you didn't, study business, you went to art school, you're just like an indie kid. Um, so what the hell business do you have, you know, running a company with this many people? Like I can tell, I can tell myself that narrative, but I also know that, you know, to get to this point, there, there is no roadmap. Like I think there, there were points where I was like, I don't, I don't have this experience. I don't have the roadmap. Like no one taught me to do this. Um, and like, yeah, because you, there's like no, there is no roadmap. There is no one that can teach you how to do this thing because you're the one doing it. And it's the, probably the first time it's been done in this exact way. Yep. Um, so I think, you know, for me, that's been helpful to remember that and realize that and give myself credit and knowing, and, and also to remember that you're never done growing that, um, I've had so many times when I thought, you know what, I'm going to have to quit this business because I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to take it to that next level. I don't have, you know, I don't have this exact experience. Um, but that's such a limiting thought. Um, and I think so often we, 
have those limiting thoughts and we listen to ourselves and we stop. Yeah. Um, we stop out of fear. We, we, um, and remembering that you're never done growing, that you can, that you, that we all have the capacity to learn and grow and that creativity is like boundless um, is a really powerful thing to, to, to remember. Um, can I interrupt you for a second? Oh yeah, I'm just, you know, No, no, we could talk going forever. on I'm and like, on and on. I'm gonna handcuff you to the, we're gonna talk for hours, <laughs> not going anywhere. No, um, so when, I think, are there tactics that you use? You talked about the story that we tell oh, ourselves. Yeah. And what do you there, mean by tactics? So are there like I'm not great, the I'm not great w- with like in, in the morning when you wake up, I always tell myself three nice things about myself. Or mm. like do you are there specifically like intentional things you do to maintain like a growth mindset? Or you know, how do you combat that three AM voice in the head that yeah. says you're not good enough, you haven't done this before? Mm. What do you do you just shut it up? Do you take a shot of tequila and Go do it anyway. Like, what? What? What's your approach to solving that really yeah. prominent tactically? Yeah, yeah. Like, how do you do it? Yeah, I mean, I think when now when I have self doubt, first I recognize I recognize it. I don't try and push it down. I just say, oh, I'm I'm feeling really depleted. I'm feeling bad about myself. I'm having a lot of self doubt, um, and I try and be compassionate to myself and say, okay, you know maybe right now is not the right time to, you know, do this big thinking thing that you're trying to do because you're, you're not in the right mindset. So try and be a little bit more sympathetic because I used to kind of have that moment and then, and then spiral, you know, try, try and, you know, kind of just like continue to spiral into it. And now I try and recognize it and then take a break. Like, okay, this is, this is not the moment to like, you know, engage with this, this inner dialogue. Um, the other thing that I do that's just very specific is at the end of every day, I write down highlights, I write down a low light, um, and I, I write down something I learned or something that was, that was, you know, an idea that was percolating. Um, and it's just a nice moment of reflection, but it's also super informative to look back at it because you a get a lot of perspective of you know and gratitude for for you know all the different things that are happening um but then when i look at the low lights for example i i often it helps me to recognize patterns and realize things that i need to address or narratives that i'm telling myself that are not helpful um so it's just i think i think a lot of self-awareness um and taking stock is is very helpful in in combating those things. I love it. You talked about creativity, creativity being boundless. That's one of my personal missions is to unlock that. The mission of Creative Live is to Mm -hmm. unlock that and millions of people all over the world. Tell me about the peach pit. Oh, the peach pit. Yes. Okay. Tell tell us about the peach pit. So the peach pit is my office um, and I call it the peach pit for multiple reasons. One, because it's Painted peach color. Um, the other is it's yeah it's kind of like a cozy environment. And then I'm a child of the '90s, so you know it's a 90210 reference. Um, but yeah, my I mean my office when I you know I first I got my own office like two years ago. That was the first time I've ever had an Been office. Been in business for how many years? Um, tw- almost 13 actually. <laughs> okay, amazing. Um, so it. yeah, I got my first office. Although it does have a clear glass door because I don't want to be weird. 
totally yeah. sectioned yeah. off. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. I I get a lot of my energy from people and conversations and stuff. Um, but in the in the peach pit, um, I do like a I have like a special kind of brainstorm that I do in there called the peach pit brainstorm. Um, so, like, you know, like once a month I have um, people from all different parts of the company, anyone can sign up, come to the Peach Bit, um, and it's really a place where we, um, I have everyone bring something that they want everyone else's thoughts on. Um, so they, sometimes people bring, you know, practical challenges that they're having in their function of their job. Sometimes people bring um, things that they're um, inspired by that they want to think about how they could um, bring into their work. Um, but it's super amazing because you, it does multiple things and we always start every peach pit by, um, we do this improv shakeout. Um, so it's very silly and fun. Um, and it just levels the playing field. It's like, cause people are coming from all different teams and levels and, um, you know, I feel like they might be intimidated, but I also sometimes get intimidated to meet new people. So just kind of like having that warm up. We're all in this together. Yeah, so just, yeah. you know, it, it, A, it kind of gets you out of your head, into your body. Um, it, it, you know, you have to kind of leave your inhibitions at the door because everyone's doing this ridiculous thing. It's like, okay, like we're just all on the same level now. So let's just. We're like, all ridiculous. Yeah, we're all that. ridiculous. So let's powerful. just, yeah, like you know, inhibitions, goodbye. Um, but yeah, we kind of, it's, it's a really nice format. I love it because I meet different people and everyone that's in there meets different people. You get a sense of what other people do and what they're thinking about. Um, and a lot of really awesome ideas have been incubated in there. Nice. Um, yeah, so it's fun. And you have I, a buzzer too, I heard the story about oh, a buzzer. Oh yes, yes I have a um, crystal um, bedazzled or it's like a plastic gemstone, because <laughs> they're not really crystals. Um, uh, bedazzled, um, I think, balderdash buzzer. Mm -hmm. um, Amazing. So Amazing. we, yeah, and we use that to. Um, Why do you buzz people? So, you know, I think in the creative process, actually, sometimes you know, constraints are can can bring about a huge amount of creativity, um, but I think in the setting of the peach fit, because it's all people from all different parts of the company, not all of whom would identify as a creative, even though everyone is creative. Um, I don't want to, I want to have it be free and open. Um, so the buzzer is if someone talks about budget, they get buzzed. If someone says, oh, well, that's not going to drive a lot of traffic, they get buzzed because I want it to be a place that is limitless and that people can feel really free and open to express things. You know, and, and you that's know. That's such a cool thing. Thank you. It's <laughs> so cool. What was, yeah. what was the genesis of the idea? Um, well, Did it evolve or was it just something like, I got this thing, we're going to bring people into my office and we're going to talk creative? I like, you know, I like taking taking inspiration from different places and taking things that have moved me in different ways and kind of mashing them together, like designing my own, my own things and ways of working um, and bringing my own unique like flavor to them. Um, so it was multiple things. Like one, I took an improv class that really I loved and I like recommend that everyone take improv because it was just so liberating. Um, it was great for just thinking on your toes, for feeling uninhibited to express yourself. I was, I, I loved it. Um, but in it, they, they did this warm up. Um, and it, I just, I thought it, 
it just changed my energy so much and I could tell it changed the energy of everyone in the, in the room. There was people that were more introverted that were like nervous to be there. Um, so that, yeah, I kind of pulled that. Then I actually just randomly had that buzzer. We didn't actually make it for the pH pit, but I had it and one day I saw it and I just grabbed it and said, we're, gonna, we're not gonna limit ourselves in here. And so we started using it. Um, so it's sort of like, it kind of evolved naturally. Um, so cool to embed that that um, ethos of creativity, not just in your space, but in your company. That that's anyone can sign up for that. Um, is this like is this something? Would you stand up in front of the company as a core value and talk about creativity? What role does creativity play for you personally yeah. and and for for Refinery Twenty Nine? So one of our core values is actually imagination, um, which I think. You know, yeah, is, inter is interchangeable, interchangeable yeah. with creativity. Um, but I think that, yeah, just continuing to reimagine the way that we, um, that we do things and the way that people can, you know, there's just so much imagination in, that's, that's possible in all different aspects and functions and, you know, from office management to um, accounting to you know, editorial. Um, well... <laughs> That's it. sorry. Yeah, maybe maybe I, I not, use that one. Maybe too. not creative accounting, I, yeah, but um, you know, it's like I think about you know our HR team and you know. Oh, so our, much opportunity. Yeah, there's so much opportunity there to think about how does someone get an offer letter? Does it you know, does is it, it is like? it just a yeah. form in the mail or do they get you know a, a package that really tells them something about the brand? So mm -hmm. that's something I try and embed in our culture is like that um, is is expressing to people what the values of the brand are, what the mission of the brand is, and then workshopping with different teams how they bring those to life in their work. And it, it, it's an amazing process because, you know, we recently sat down with our growth team and we walked them through and they, at, at first they were like, oh, well, we're not, we don't really drive the brand with our work. And then, you know, we, we did this workshop with them and by the end they were like, we're, we're hugely influential to the way that, you know, we get our brand out there. And they, they were just, they like came, al came alive and they just really could see how they are part of, of creating something. And I think that um, to me that's so important is helping people to, to A, understand what the values are and then how they can in interpret them because to go back to that monolithic creative director or the monolithic founder or CEO or whoever yeah. it is, Myth. the the way that you create an amazing company is through the power of all the different people and, and giving them the tools and the confidence um, to really excel in each of their roles. So for me that's what I that's like what I'm get really excited about and like geek out on and think about different peach pity type workshops and ways that we can um, infuse that in you know, people across the company. Um, so impressive. I, I, it's obviously contributed deeply to your growth. I want to talk, um, there's one more thing I want to address before yeah. before we're, all, we're getting close to time here. And we I, it's, are? I know, it's crazy. Just flown by. Isn't it crazy? Yes. Eight, 80 minutes. What? Yeah. 70, 76 minutes. I thought we were talking like for about 25 minutes. Crazy, right? Crazy. Yeah. Um, time is a construct. It is. Let's get, well, yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, uh, Believe me, I want to. Um, when you were talking and riffing on creativity right there, and 
you know, how the growth team at Refinery29, I just, I find these constrained things in, in Creative Live and I try and undo them and I, you know, when I travel or speak to other folks and I see these limiting mindsets, to me, how you unlock them and like the process that that's such a focus for you and yeah. for the company, I think is an important lesson for people out there because yeah. they see your success and they say, wow, these have you know, hundreds of millions of uniques and they raised a hundred million dollars and oh my gosh, this, you guys have made such an impact. Talk to me about 29 rooms. Because like, to me, that seems almost like, uh, yeah, but that's not core to our business. Right. And you can easily talk about that as a, is that a KPI or is that a, and you know, for those non-business folks out there, these are like how we think about the business and yeah. how we drive it. And yet this is something that was wildly creative. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about it and then what role it plays in, in sort of your growth and your brand and, and. I'm sure people through extension can think about how they could Im employ that in their own lives. Yeah. Um, so 29 Rooms is our immersive fun house of style, culture, and technology. Um, it's something that's hard to describe um, because it's, you know, it's really unique, but it's, um, we bring to life um, the ideas and themes that we have in our content in 29 different rooms that we work with 29 different artists and collaborators to bring to life in real life in real life so it's, a, it's like it has a it's kind of like a fun house meets an art installation um and it's super imaginative and and what role does it play for you guys like i mean to me that's an amazing concept i've seen it done at hotels that were about to get destroyed yeah. you know, they, they bring in some artists and yeah. they'll do that, but what role does that exercise, seemingly whimsical, when you have investors and deadlines mm -hmm. and you know and metrics that you need to hit, but yet you've gone off and done this thing that, you know, what role does that play for yeah. you and the team and and the brand? Yeah, I mean, I think you know when we we did the first twenty nine rooms back. Um, two years ago and this September we'll be doing our third and then actually we're expanding um, from there but um, when we first did it I think you know if you had looked at it if it might feel like a non sequitur for us you know we're a digital media brand so why are we creating this huge you know experiential event um, it was a couple of things so one it was our 10-year anniversary so it gave us um, an opportunity to say, what do we want to do um, to celebrate 10 years? Um, and we we were thinking about the fact that we um, we wanted to do something during New York Fashion Week because our roots as a brand are in style. Um, it's also a time that just already has like um, Earth activations, yeah, yeah stuff going, stuff you know, yeah. buzz around it, and there's cultural awareness. Um, but we want to do something to disrupt that and to also show the fact that for us, style is so much more than what you wear and that the brand, our brand has expanded so far beyond style. Um, and so we, um, and we also went, we were thinking back, you know, it's our 10 year anniversary, so we were thinking back to the core values of the company, inclusivity, um, imagination, impact, and went all the way back to that mall map that I described and the fact that we started with this um, digital map of 29 different spaces. Um, so we said, what if we create that in real life and we bring to life all the different, um, the different kind of topics and ideas that we write about into this space? I love it. 
Um, and so we were, you know, hugely inspired by a lot of like museum installations and um, and immersive, you know, things like fun houses, um, because we wanted to create a space where um, was really joyful and fun, and people let their guard down and almost felt childlike. Um, so it opened them up, yeah. um, but then within it also, you know delve into thought-provoking, deep topics so that sort of have that emotional arc and, a trans and kind of create a transformative experience. Um, and for me, what was most gratifying was the first year we did it and it was so, it was a huge risk. Um, it almost didn't happen because it was just very hard to convince people that it was a good idea um, because it was something we'd never done before, um, that we hadn't really seen done before. Um, Probably. Kind of expensive, relative was, to some other reach yeah, things that you could possibly exactly. do. Exactly, yeah. it was an investment. Um, it was a stretch for us to produce it. Um, it's still, I still look back at that, and I was like, that was a miracle that we did that. Um, but we did it, and it was amazing. It was such a huge. Um, it was like so much more of a success than we even thought it could be on on many different levels. Um, just the social reach alone. Um, we brought in amazing brand partners for it. Um, and for me, one of the most gratifying things was just the audience reaction. We had such demands for the experience and we had people going through and saying, wow, this event made me want to start dreaming bigger or this event made me feel creative. And I think that was, um, you know, that's the beauty of it is that it really does have that transformative effect and it's like when you when you take a risk like that, when you create something that is exuberantly creative, that is, um, you know, inclusive in that way, it, it, it's kind of contagious. Like people leave it and they feel the intention that we put into it and they take it into their own lives. Um, so the role it's played in our business is, is multiple fold. One, um, we, know we created it as a digital brand, but also seeing that um, our audience was really um, starting to you know, we all live in our digital world like this. We started to see our audience was, um, you know, really interested in experiential events. They wanted to, um, you know, do, you know, they were more interested in investing in experiences than in products. Um, so that was, you know, it's all, it was, it was multiple full, but that was sort of a trend that we were seeing. And so now 29 Rooms really functions as um, our touchstone with our, with our audience, our biggest event of the year where we can really bring them into our world, um, give them this, you know, amazing experience and gift, um, interact with them. And, um, you know, and it's also something that drives press, it drives um, social reach you know, just brand awareness and, and we work with amazing brands to put it on so it drives revenue. So it's now it's become this much bigger thing and like, I, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Like I really see this um, being a whole, you know, its whole own um, world unto itself. Well, that's, I think the takeaway there is obviously there's so many things to take away, but what underpins it all is this thing that was a risk that you qualified and quantified you, you had this instinct that there was something there, but it was gonna be scary and hard and expensive yeah. and, and you did it anyway. Mm -hmm. And now it's you know, one of the things that it sounds yeah. like you're, you know, it's, it's, the, it's a flagship piece yeah. of what you built. It's, yeah, it's our most successful franchise. Um, so yeah, I think there were times when we were you know, pushing to create 29 Rooms where you know, there was so much resistance and I thought, 
you know, I could, I was there in my mind, I could see it, and the, the creative team that, that came up with the idea with me, like, we all were there, and we were like, this is going to be amazing, we felt it, um, and that's, you know, it's important to hold on to that feeling, because for me, the creative process is, like, usually, like, um, you know, thinking, thinking, excited, excited, yeah. breakthrough, like, holy shit, I have a great <laughs> idea, um, or we have a great idea, and then, and then it kind of goes, like, teeth gnashing, like, how the hell do we make this thing, resistance, like, self-doubt, like, you know, crawling through the, like, crawling through the grime, and then finally, like, kind of breaking through to the other side. Um, so I think during that, cra like, crawling through the grime period, it's, like, important to hold on to the vision that you had. Um, and I think it's really helpful with any creative project to, like, really be able to, to focus on how you describe that and how you really walk someone through the vision very tangibly, because um, that was a breakthrough moment for us in pitching 29 Rooms, was we were describing it as you know this fun house of art and style and culture, um, and people were like, oh, that sounds cool, but when we started describing it as you're gonna show up at this Brooklyn warehouse and you're not gonna quite know where you are, but then when you walk inside, they're gonna go through a glitter lips doorway, through a lipstick mirror maze, and then into a VR room where you can travel to three different cities. Like, then people were like, whoa, <laughs> that sounds cool. I wanna experience that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something um, that can be really helpful when you're pitching out an idea is to really put yourself in the shoes of the other person and make it, try and make it easy for them to transport themselves there, like to help them get there. Um, because I, I've found that in my own, is like sometimes I have this idea, but, and I'm trying to explain it, but I don't have, you know, if you don't have a good articulation that is kind of like, this is gonna sound harsh, but like idiot proof, like yeah. make, make it something that everyone can understand. Yeah. Um, that can really help kind of get an idea through. At the core of that is storytelling. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things that I'm, I'm totally. also, it's a, you know, so many people I've sat next to, the, creating a narrative around something, especially if you're selling an idea, you can be wildly creative, but the ability to package it yeah. and get people to buy into your ideas is every bit as important as the most wild creative life yeah. or creative uh, ideas. More you, important most yeah. of the time. Tell me about that. Just like that, we'll, we'll end on that because yeah. I know that this is an important piece. How important is it to be able to package your creative ideas? I think being able to package your creative ideas and make make it so anyone can understand them um, is, you know, completely invaluable. Because otherwise, you're kind of just the lone, you know, this like lone wolf, you know, imagineer. Um, with all these ideas, but you risk kind of being isolated and not having people buy in, which can be really um, something that is very isolating. Yeah, and self-defeating. Um, yeah, all and and some people need help with that. Yeah. You know, not every not everyone is, um, you know, because the idea can be so in your head. Sometimes you need to sit with someone and say, like I tell a lot of creatives on our team to do that. Like I say. Okay, but just go and show this to someone in a totally different team and make sure that it's they get not it. Crazy. That they, you know, it's sometimes it's if we're designing something, just make you know, it's like how you user test. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't you don't you, you don't have to be totally responsible all on your own for packaging. You know, it's good to have you know friends and loved ones and 
coworkers that can help bounce things off of, um, but knowing how to encapsulate your idea in a way that people can understand it will help you um, to get buy-in, to get funding, to um, you know, get people on board with what you want to create, because um, it's really hard to go it alone. Thank you so Thank you. much. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there, as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this. Also, uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platforms. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.